0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about virginity and whether masturbating makes you a virgin. Hint, masturbation is a type of sex. So what do you think? I'm also talking about cannabis use and sexual intimacy, where I share the latest research on the topic and my interview with the lovely and brilliant Riley Webster. But first, today in sex. In Canada, where I live, cannabis is legal and folks are able to buy it at government regulated stores. This is relatively new here, and while it is exciting, there have been a lot of claims about its magical properties, and especially in sex. As you know, one of my favorite people ever is Dr. Jen Gunter, who is the author of The Vagina Bible, and as an OBGYN, she says that we have no idea how cannabis acts vaginally, and that there really isn't enough evidence to support any of the claims that come from cannabis companies. That doesn't mean that cannabis companies aren't selling the fact that their product can make your vagina smell better, taste better, feel better, feel more pleasure, all of these different things. And I think we just need to take that with a grain of salt. That's where I've come in and I have read a ton of articles that hopefully will help us talk about cannabis use, sexual health, and intimacy in a more productive way. So I read this great article from the Vancouver Star called Can Cannabis Use Really Help Your Sex Life? What I love about the article is the mention of sexual shame and how, particularly for people with vulvas, we we tend to pathologize sexual dysfunction such as low libido and consistently achieving orgasm, when actually sexual shame might be the root cause of a lot of these issues, and they might not necessarily even be a physical issue. Now, constantly trying to fix our bodies and align with, what, the social standards from social media, that's something that people with vulvas have been facing for a long time, and cannabis use is just the latest thing to be added to the repertoire. On the flip side, I know a lot of people, particularly folks with vulvas, who really struggle to get out of their heads when they're having sex, and they can spend a lot of time policing themselves and their reactions, because... They don't want to look silly, they don't want to make the wrong sound, they don't want to look unattractive, maybe we're trying to suck in our bellies, we're always trying to look a certain way and behave a certain way. So for some people, eating a pot chocolate or smoking a joint before sex, it might actually help us get into our bodies a bit more and allow our brains to let go of that constant need to monitor ourselves. So in the research, there was a 2010 study in Australia, which had over 8,000 participants, and the findings said that frequent cannabis use is associated with higher numbers of sexual partners for both men and women, and difficulties in men's ability to orgasm as desired. Meaning that the men who answered, who were a part of this study, said that they had difficulty either reaching orgasm, they reached it earlier than they wanted, or maybe they didn't reach it at all. There's another study talking about the age of sexual debut and cannabis use in the United States. Broadly speaking, this looked at what are the rates that people are having their first sexual experiences and how does that relate to cannabis use? So early sexual debut was positively associated with higher odds of lifetime and past year cannabis use, whereas later sexual debut was associated with lower chance of lifetime cannabis use. Also in the study, it showed that using cannabis is linked to risky sexual behavior. I'm using that with little bunny ears here, which is not without its biases. And what they mean by risky sexual behavior is having multiple sexual partners, less frequent condom use, and earlier sexual debut. But I will say that the research that they cite, this is a study from 2016. The research they cite is from the early 90s. I also want to point out that one of the things I really enjoy doing as an academic and a researcher is to look at these studies and what kind of biases are they making? What kind of assumptions are they making? Especially in this article talking about sexual debut, the way that the researchers designed the study itself was actually really problematic. So they categorized sexual debut as early if someone had their first sexual experience if they were younger than 18, they were average if they had it at only the age of 18, and late if it was over 18 years old. So really, they're giving one year, only when you're 18, as the average or normal time to have your first sexual experience. And basically saying that you're abnormal if you have it before or after that? Just saying. Research does not come without its own biases. Now the last article that I liked, and all of these articles will be linked in the description of the episode itself, it talks about How does cannabis actually affect sex? And this compiles academic research in a really accessible format. In this article, they talk about how cannabis is a vasodilator, meaning that your blood vessels, they could open up to increase blood flow and that can be associated with sexual pleasure and arousal. There is one huge caveat though, and this is something that I really, am happy that they mentioned in this article. They say that thanks to the system of prohibition that's dominated drug policy in the U.S. for the past few decades, a system that has had and continues to have a disproportionately large impact on communities of color, there's simply not a whole lot of research to go on. This is also true in Canada, but I can see from this article being based in the U.S. that absolutely the way that drug policy has been formed disproportionately affects people of color and BIPOC communities. Overall, when it comes to cannabis use, really, there isn't a lot of research out there to substantiate any of these claims that cannabis is enhancing our sexual libidos, it's increasing sensation. As I said, the links to all of these articles are in the description of the episode itself, so check those out to get a bit more information. And now, let's get to your calls. Now, this first question came from someone who had a lot of good ideas on what I could talk about on the show, but there's one specific part that I'm going to look at today. They say, I'd be very interested in learning about your research regarding sex after religious sexual suppression, such as going from no education to everything on a wedding night for a virgin person of faith. Now, I'm really glad that you bring that up because actually throughout this episode, I'm going to be talking about virginity and sexual debut and how we really need to change our understanding of those terms. But religion is a whole other wrench to throw into that. So let's break it down. From my perspective, and what I'm going to be talking about today, is mainly looking at Christianity as really the dominant religion in North America. And a lot of their education about sex, if they offer any at all, is based around shame, abstinence, and waiting until marriage. Now, religion is deeply tied to how we view the world and how we understand our place within it, so there are a lot of factors at play. Now, as part of my PhD dissertation, I actually have an entire chapter about sexual shame and where it comes from, and within that, there's a specific section that discusses religion in North America where I focus primarily on Christianity and its ties to colonialism. So just a heads up, I am not a religious person, but I grew up with much of my family attending the Anglican Church, so that is framing my understanding. Now, within North America, Christianity is the dominant religion that's really embedded in our political and our social structures, and also our educational structures as well. Now, what I find really interesting, and that I wove into as part of my dissertation, is how people live within cultures. They live within these realms of belief and ideas that are built communally, and that influence our understandings of social norms and our beliefs. Based on my reading of multiple different articles of sexual shame and its connections to Christianity, there are ideals of purity before marriage and these things are upheld in Christian values that reinscribe these social scripts of sexual shame and if you have sex before marriage, if you have sex with multiple partners, non-heterosexual sex, then you are committing a sin. Now for a lot of folks this is tied to their understanding of marriage but also their relationship to God. While I don't believe in God, I do want to hold space here where folks of various religious backgrounds can feel safe and heard in this space, while also recognizing that Christianity has been used to justify some really horrible atrocities against many folks who don't conform to their ideas and their ideology, and particularly indigenous folks across what is now called North America. So if you're coming from this perspective, I can only imagine how terrifying that must be when you come into that situation, having trying to have sex on your wedding night, and you haven't been given the education, the language, or even the space to ask questions about sex, so what the hell are you supposed to expect? Now, the expectation is that you will have sex with this one person for the rest of your life or until one of you dies, so when you enter into a relationship not knowing how sexually compatible you'll be, then I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. This is not to say that there aren't folks out there who got really lucky, actually and figuratively, by being sexually compatible to their spouse, but it probably took a lot of work and a lot of time to get there. In any sexual relationship, the type of sex you have, it evolves over time, as well as what feels pleasurable and what's exciting. My personal belief is that you should test drive the car before you drive it. You know what I mean? Like sexual compatibility isn't everything in a relationship, but knowing how you work together before you lock it down be kind of nice to know. Now in terms of sexual compatibility, I would really highly recommend listening to Dan Savage on the Savage Lovecast because he is incredible and in his very candid responses to people saying that they're sexually incompatible, and he breaks it down about why that's a big part of having a successful and fulfilling relationship. Now caller, in an effort to look at this from various perspectives, I actually ended up looking at an article called The Uncomfortable Truth About Sex in a Christian Marriage on the website called hope and joy in Christ. For you, Caller, I read this article and tried not to be totally appalled that it was written only last year. It gave a lot of insight into the deeply misogynistic undertones of Christianity, and as our pal Tiffany shares, the person who wrote it, "...since the sin entered the world, the enemy has so completely distorted sex and intimacy that we tend to have unrealistic expectations." I have a sneaking suspicion that if Tiffany were to listen to this podcast and the way that I talk about sex, I would probably be labeled an enemy, the one that she talks about repeatedly in the article. She basically outlines that as a woman, of course, it's very gender binary language in this article, that we shouldn't expect very much in these sexual encounters and that our role is purely to satisfy our husband's sexual needs. She then goes on to make a really terrible analogy about our husbands denying you chocolate and how outrageous that would be and how if you snuck a bite of chocolate at your aunt Flo's place, then you would be sinning. By not having sex with your husband, she basically says that you're tempting him into sin. Maybe with the same aunt Flo? I don't know. Her analogy gets a bit messy at the end. Basically, I can understand how growing up with this understanding of sexuality it can really affect feelings of sexual shame and how anything outside of procreative sex between a husband and a wife is labeled as deviant. Now, despite more and more folks not claiming to be part of any religion and becoming more and more secular, these narrow ideas can still inform our understandings of sex. Now, for a much better article that cites actual research and is written by a relationship counselor and sex therapist, I highly recommend How Religion Screws With Our Sex Lives. The tagline of it is... Blind faith is more dangerous than masturbation, in which I say, Amen. As Maddie Silver, the author, writes, I see many people whose sexual problems stem directly from their upbringing. Often they are completely unaware of it, which is not surprising given they are taught these confusing values from an early age. Now, as I've mentioned in other episodes, these experiences that we have early on in life, these conversations that we have when we're young, inform our experiences as we age and throughout our lives. So I can understand that if you grow up hearing certain messages about sex, you tend to believe them and they would be pretty deeply rooted in our understandings of ourselves and ourselves as sexual beings. Now, as much as there is to learn about sex, that also means that there is so much to unlearn. And a lot of that unlearning actually starts in our 20s and continues throughout our lives. So when the messages that you've been receiving all the life are that you, as Maddie says, have to be a virgin, preferably have no sexual activity before marriage, no masturbation, and definitely no homosexuality, then your capacity for shame increases while your capacity for pleasure decreases. What I especially love about this article is Dr. Marty Klein's quote about sexuality and religion. Sexuality is religion's worst nightmare because it offers a possibility of personal autonomy. Anyone can be sexual, rich or poor, old or young, tall or short, educated or not. And I think that's the crux of how many religions have tried to control sex by making it this a moral act, and it's only proper in these very certain and specific contexts. Now, heaven forbid if we were to act with our own agency, to claim our pleasure, and to have consensual sex with who we want. There are plenty of religious people around the world who have satisfying sex lives, but too often, religion and sexual shame go hand in hand. And only when we engage in our own education and unlearning can we discover our true sexual selves without all that baggage and without all that shame. As promised, I will leave the link to this article in the description of the episode, so go check it out because I really enjoyed reading it. Now on to your next question. Hi, Leah. I'm a big fan of you and Levi's YouTube channel and love the first episode of your podcast. I have a question topic suggestion. I know you requested voice memos, but I hope you'll accept my emailed question. I'm living in close quarters under quarantine with my extremely conservative parents. Can we talk about the term virgin? what does it mean to be a virgin? And is it even a term that is constructive in the field? For example, does one need to have sex to completion in order to lose their virginity? Does masturbating mean one has lost their virginity? Why should sex make me feel like I've lost something? Is this term anything more than a social construct? I have friends with same-sex partners who have been told that they should still consider themselves virgins, which feels incredibly dismissive of their relationships. Thank you for sending this in. And clearly it's a huge topic and even as you hear in all of the questions that you have, I'm sure we've all asked that about ourselves. You know, when we're growing up and we first hear the term virgin, you know, what does that mean? We're giving a pretty narrow scope of what that looks like. So from my perspective, the term virgin and the idea of virginity, you're right, it's not constructive in this field. First thing, our understanding of virginity is flawed, because it's super heteronormative, and that means that basically we only value penis and vagina sex between cisgender people. And that is just one form of sex. I repeat, only one form. Now, I've seen in some academic articles the term used, virginity loss, and I really dislike that term. Actually, even more than just virgin. Virgin. Because it's associating it with losing something, or giving something up, or admitting defeat. You're so right, Caller, that the term, it's a social construct. And when I say social construct, or that something is socially constructed, I mean that us humans, as a society, we've made up this idea. But it's really, really powerful in how it controls us, and it tries to regulate our actions. I actually have a brief write-up from my dissertation about how we are socially created as sexual beings. So indulge me for just one moment. Humans are sexual beings who are socialized from the moment we are born to the moment we die. Social constructions surround and they mediate our experiences throughout our lives. And human beings are socially produced through the narratives people use to make sense of and understand their lives. We all keep on telling stories about our embodied experiences, both to ourselves and to others. Through this repetitive act of storytelling about ourselves, about others' experiences, about society, then really we create these insanely powerful institutions and ideas that dictate what's normal and what isn't, and we punish people based on what we think is normal. That's all to say that society is always trying to shape how we should behave and how we understand ourselves in the world. And it's really, it's a huge job to unpack it all, and and come to understand ourselves without all of that socialization coming through and impeding us. Now virginity is a big part of that and there's a lot of pressure to be pure or virginal or either to give it up or lose it. And it's really sad that these conversations are still happening today. Now as to some of your specific question, caller, uh, here's a brief rundown. So one, masturbation, I believe, is a type of sex, but society's understanding of virginity is really steeped in one type of sex, and that's P in the V. Now this is also probably why some people have insisted that your friends in same-sex relationships should say that they're virgins. And no, that is definitely not true. This is a type of, of sexual hierarchy where some people think that penis and vagina sex between a cisgender man and a cisgender woman is the only legit type of sex that makes you lose your virginity. But really what that's doing is ignoring so many other types of sex you're right that it's really dismissive of same-sex relationships to state that they're still virgins and it's denying all of this sexual intimacy that goes way beyond just P and the V and really pleasurable activities that you know are way more expansive than just that understanding. In terms of our early sexual experiences, I think we need to, we need to reimagine and reframe virginity or virginity loss. And instead, we need to look at it as sexual debut, I didn't come up with this term, but I will link the article, the academic article that I have heard it in, and I just love it. For a debut, say for a movie or a play or something like that, a lot of work goes into preparing ourselves for that debut. So in that same way, I think we need to prepare ourselves for these early sexual experiences by Educating ourselves and by knowing what feels pleasurable in our bodies and what does that mean in terms of our boundaries with another person or with multiple partners. So, what is our understanding of sex? Is it deep kissing? Is it grinding while keeping our clothes on? Is it sex with our fingers or sex with our mouths? Really, the best thing about sex is there is so much variety. And so, why would we narrow it down to just this one understanding? coming back around to your question caller, no, I think, I think the term virgin has got to go because we all know that it's trying to indicate one specific type of sex when we know there's so much variety and that is the only normal thing about sex. Now I'm excited to share my interview with Riley Webster. Riley has worked in the cannabis industry. She is a yoga teacher and a writer, has studied Reiki, massage, Ayurveda, and is a host of the Kismet Collection podcast. So here it is. Oh my god. Line them up. I, I should talk do this. That. I didn't actually know, but if I want to have <laughs> you like... you a sound engineer, yeah. <laughs> I didn't go to school to be a sound engineer. It's not really my <laughs> skill.
1: Right, right. But...
0: Uh, That's fair. Yeah, I'm just like practicing (laughs) there you go perfect i'm doing great thanks hopefully every podcast is slowly better i've been there right it will get better it's fine i feel like especially now when it's like okay we need to record audio but we also have to be like a certain distance apart from each other or call each other yeah so totally i feel like people forgive us if this isn't going well just forgive us (laughs) because we're like six feet apart (laughs) and we have three different things recording us
1: yeah sorry about that
0: (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be great. Do you want to introduce yourself and then we'll go from there?
1: For sure. Um, My name is Riley. I have a background in many things. (laughs) (laughs) I am a very multi-passionate person, but I think the common thread with all the things I do is that I have a deep curiosity about human life and Mm. how to live well and what that means right so i have a background in yoga teaching Um, i've studied ayurveda which is the indian uh, medical system i've studied reiki and massage and then also i kind of have a other side of myself that's very kind of business oriented and a little bit type a so in the last couple years i've been a writer for different companies mainly Mm -hmm. wellness companies and the last uh Yeah, the last nine months I've worked for a cannabis company. So Mm -hmm. that's been really interesting to kind of combine that like business knowledge with this curiosity about wellness and, you know, how we can use plants to help us feel better and Mm -hmm. also the problems with using plants in a way that maybe isn't the most effective or um, conscious as -hmm. well. Yeah, it's been an interesting process to be part of an industry that is so new, and also it's been cool because I've gotten to do a lot of my own research around, um, yeah, even just to better my own life about where cannabis can kind of fit into my life and where it doesn't have a place, and I've seen a lot of the ways in which other people use it that... Mm. Yeah, it's just
0: really, really interesting to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was interesting because when you first approached me, and just so people know on the podcast, Riley and I have known each other <laughs> since like childhood. I'm trying yeah. to think. I'm like, I don't remember, like four or five yeah. or something. right? Yeah. <laughs> like so long. So long. And it's been a while since I've been connected. I feel like yeah. I've been following you for ages yeah, on same. Instagram. And then it was like, oh, it's so good to see you. Yeah. I think that was great because originally when you had reached out to me, we were specifically going to look at like sexual shame and intimacy and cannabis use, mm-hmm. which I was so fascinated by. And I was really excited to, I'm like a, I'm a huge nerd. I'm a very good student too. Like I love to do research. So as soon as you kind of put that out there, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to read up on all the things that, Mm. that we do know about cannabis use and and sexual health and stuff, Mm -hmm. which disclaimer is not a lot. No, it's not right. Like scientifically research wise, not a lot because I mean it's only been legal in Canada for just over a year like a year and a half
1: yeah two years for adult use um, for adult use and yeah so it's it's still like grey right there's a lot of unknowns around it and there's still a lot of stigma and like for example yesterday my landlord was like hey I need to come into your place to check something about I don't know the bill I don't I don't know the technicalities but she had to check something <laughs> in my kitchen and I remember that I had a jar of cannabis on my windowsill and I literally I was out and about and I considered coming home to like put that in the cupboard because mm. that's like the kind of fear around that is still right. very real even though and then I had to remind myself I'm actually allowed to have that. Yeah. I'm an adult. Like, we're good here. Just because there is stigma around it doesn't mean I can't use it or can't have it out and about or like, why can't I speak about that, you know? Yeah. But there is this, the stigma is you smoke weed, you're a stoner. Yeah. For me, that's not the case. Like, I use it very intentionally sometimes and unintentionally other times. So for me, intentional use looks like maybe having one puff when I'm out walking my dog in nature and I just want to like be a little bit more in my body and like ground down mm-hmm. and feel a little bit more I don't know kind of awake I guess to nature because right. you're, you're smoking nature and I feel that it kind of allows you to be more open to your senses and unintentional use looks like me the other night where you know, all this stuff is going on in the States and I was super overwhelmed and I just mm-hmm. didn't want to think about it that night, right that hour, whatever. So I used it to, you know, just get out of my head and mm-hmm. watch a movie. So like there are two ways and not that one is necessarily bad. I mean, I'm all about self-compassion with any substance. And I think mm-hmm. that it's a long road to I don't know, understanding yourself in the way that you use substances, even for example, coffee or like there are when I'm in my day and it's 3 p.m. and I'm tired and I don't want to feel that tiredness because I'm meant to be productive. That's yeah. the way that my worth is measured. So I'll have a cup of coffee so that I can not feel that and yeah. I can keep pushing on. For what? I don't know.
0: But, <laughs> like, right?
1: What am I pushing for? I don't know. I
0: think that like a part of that stigma with cannabis use is linked to like productivity and how can you be like a good citizen who's like giving back to society or whichever. But so much of that is measured by our financial worth. Yeah. And it's just a part of this whole capitalist system of like your worth is measured by... How much money do you put into the world, and not how much good are you putting into the world how yeah. how self aware are you and how are you aware of the space that you take up and also holding space for others? yeah and so totally yeah i think I think that's a good distinction as well because we have these stigmas around like cannabis use and so many other different drugs, mm-hmm. but coffee and alcohol and more of those socially accepted mm-hmm. ones, especially. I know when you're thinking about like sexual health and stuff. Like mm-hmm. alcohol is used all the time with sex, mm-hmm. yet it's not nearly as pathologized mm-hmm. as like pot use and sex, or so many other yes. different drugs and sex, like party drugs.
1: Yeah, and sex. totally. And for me, like if I consume alcohol and have sex, I feel way more like numb. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I have a little bit of cannabis and have sex, I'm so in my body and like, I'm so open to pleasure and I don't know. I just feel completely different from the two, which is really interesting that like, yeah, alcohol is such this common thing in our lives, whether Mm -hmm. it's in your personal life or just societally, culturally, whereas cannabis, this thing that I think does have potential, not always, but I think it has potential to like, help us tap into our own pleasure or help us feel connected to someone or connected to nature is still so taboo and so mm-hmm. associated with kind of bad things. I say that with quotations. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, it's associated with like your morality or whatever. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. well, you're, you're not a very like thoughtful person or, a, mm-hmm. or you spend all of your time like lying on the couch eating potato chips cause you're stoned. Which I mean, definitely I have been that kind of stone before and it's like, wow, like sometimes great. That's, that's exactly what you were like needing or wanting in that moment. And other times you're like, Oh my gosh, this was too much.
1: Absolutely. And I think that sometimes we need something outside of ourselves to help us realize what it is that we want. So whether that's like something intervening in your life or whether it's like a cannabis experience that's helped give you clarity around something For me, yeah, being able to listen to my body and like Mm -hmm. actually what it wants through whether that's smoking a little bit of weed or just being outside in nature or calming my mind or doing any of those things for myself is like
0: revolutionary in Mm -hmm. my life. Yeah, when you can see how, and there isn't enough research to tell us, but like anecdotally talking Mm. to people and I think particularly for women and people with vulvas and uteruses, it's that it's a way to fully connect and be in our bodies Mm -hmm. in a way that so often we're divided like our mind body divide happens so much so then if you can have something that just like heightens your awareness Mm -hmm. a little bit and
1: yeah
0: so i think that's why there's so much interest in what can cannabis offer us in Mm -hmm. terms of our sexual health and like Mm -hmm. Connecting into what we're actually feeling, yeah, and especially in terms of desire, like a lot of the time Mm -hmm. when they've done tons of clinical trials about this, about how predominantly like men and and people with penises are so much more aware of their physical arousal and their desire because they're taught to be really in tune with it, whereas women will like you know I think in some of the trials they need to like you know watch porn or something and like the people with penises are like, Oh yeah. Like I know that I'm aroused from it. Whereas a lot of folks with vulvas will watch it and be like, Oh yeah, it was enjoyable. But then their actual like physical arousal Mm. is very much present, but they haven't in their mind been like, Oh, I'm feeling desire right now or I'm feeling arousal. Right. So there's just like this divide from like our shoulders down where we're like, Oh, I don't actually know what's happening in my body. Yeah. Because we're just taught to kind of to frame our sexuality in such mm-hmm. a way. And especially around like sexual shame and like mm-hmm. performativity in sex.
1: Oh my god, yeah.
0: Right? we are like, how do I look? Should I be making this face? Should I make this sound?
1: Oh, it's <sighs> wild. And I'm so in the process of unwinding that.
0: Mm-hmm. The unlearning? Um, oh, that.
1: yeah. Like so much of my sex in the past has been complete performative like Mm. what do I look like do I look pretty in this angle like is this noise okay like what's my hair doing like yada 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 Mm -hmm. and it goes on and on and on and I was actually speaking with this um somatic sex therapist oh interesting so interesting and he was talking about how the more authentic you become to yourself so like meaning authentic in relationships authentic in like speaking what's true for you Just the more true you are to yourself, the more true your pleasure is going to be. Because Mm. he explained it like, if someone's having a bad day and you think a hug is going to make them feel better, you go, hey, can I give you a hug? And the other person doesn't want to, they don't really want a hug, but they don't want to say no because they want you to feel better that you're giving a hug. So they say, yeah, sure, I'll have a hug. But no one's Mm. receiving the hug.
0: Oh there's a yeah. there's a physical reaction there but no one is receiving no one's actually those...
1: receiving the hug. Yeah. so in sex he was saying like if you're performing for example, you're performing to make them feel better mm-hmm. and they're performing back to make you feel better but no one's actually feeling really really good
0: yeah no one's <laughs> actually feeling pleasure we're giving you what has like social media and society in yeah. general showed us what yeah. pleasure looks like yeah
1: right yeah. And I think, um, yeah, like in my journey with sex, like I've been in a number of relationships where it's always been about how much can I please you? How mm-hmm. much can I please you? How much pleasure can I give you? Oh, uh, like, don't, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Like, I just want to give you everything. And mm-hmm. I forget myself like completely, right. like I am disassociated almost. Hmm. And, um, in the last year I've been single, like, you know, like different little interactions and this and that, but I've been primarily single and I've been using this as a time to like really work on my own self intimacy. Like Mm -hmm. what do I actually like, like actually like, not because I have to make a sound to make him Mm -hmm. excited or like to pleasure him, but like what actually feels good. Mm -hmm. And that's where cannabis has been interesting. And like, like I said, I, I try to use it really intentionally, but even having a little bit, at least at this point in my journey has really helped me understand what feels good Mm. because it gets you out of your head just that little bit where you're not thinking so much about like, Oh, like, is this weird that this feels good? Or is this like, could I ever actually do this with a partner or whatever? And it just gets you just below your head into your body where you're like, oh man, no, this actually feels really good. Yeah. (laughs) And I just want this to feel, keep feeling good. Yeah. So it's this like journey of self exploration. Right. Which is really cool. And I think my hope is that other people, like whether they're single or not, can kind of be brave and, and start that journey because it comes back to what the somatic sex therapist said. Like if I don't know my own authentic pleasure, how will anyone else? Mm -hmm. Right. And how will anyone be able to actually see me the way I want to be seen in intimacy? If I can't even look
0: at what I have to offer, what feels Mm -hmm. good for me. So interesting that you, you say that about like exploring your own self pleasure and how pot has been uh, like an aid. I think think it's, to me it almost feels like it's, Like it's a sex toy in some ways. Like you have to see it as like an aid in the bedroom. Mm. It's not going to replace certain things. It's not going to replace communication or like being in tune with your body, but it is an aid to help you reach those things a bit easier.
1: Yes. And like microdose, you know, like the tiniest bit. Like there's such a fine line there. And I think that's again, part of the self exploration. It's like, Seeing what works for you maybe it won't work for you at all like and when i say work for you maybe it just doesn't feel good you Mm -hmm. know we all have different ways but yeah definitely like more Mm. as an aid
0: yeah well it's interesting because even in the research i was looking at there you know a couple of doctors talking about like look we don't know enough yet but their recommendation is you start with a low dose you start very slowly and you start self-pleasuring you start masturbating so you Mm. do it Yourself, so you know what feels good, you know your threshold, so then you can explain that to a partner. Yeah, because I feel if you're caught up in the okay, I need to please this partner, okay, and they really want both of us to get high before we have sex, then it gets into a whole thing where what is pleasurable, yeah, and then you're talking about like consent and enthusiastic agreement and what does that look like when you're under the influence, right? And if you don't know how your body's going to react to a certain chemical or to a certain drug, then how can you really know and be grounded in like your mind and your body to communicate yeah. that? I mean, that that's a lot of the reason why it happens so often with consent and, and sexual abuse and aggression mm-hmm. through um, like alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And we've had less research about cannabis use, like those correlations. Mm-hmm. But even in the research that I've seen, it is just so steeped in that stigma, like I was reading this one article about sexual debut. I'm liking mm. this new phrase. It's not like virginity loss, mm. which I'm like, Oof, like, what does that sexual even mean? Debut. Sexual I debut love that. feels like it sounds like a debutante ball or something. Like yeah, being...
1: virginity loss—that's actually a wild term if you think right? about
0: it. Right. Like, well, because it's positioned. As a loss, and this is particularly yeah. for people with vulvas. It's like, oh, it's a loss, a thing that you had to hold on to. Yeah. And so, sexual debut feels like an entering into Ooh. this new part of yourself, right? Yes. Oh
1: my God. Yes. I am totally going to use that language. Right. It's yeah. fascinating. That is fascinating. It's fascinating how powerful language is.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and that's and even in the articles that I was reading. Like, yeah there's no way, and I think people like to think about like science and rigorous academic research as, (laughs) you know, it's, it's so, um, non-biased and these are the facts you're like, but a person conducted this research and a person Mm -hmm. wrote this Mm -hmm. and there's no way for a person to not have a bias about what they're saying. Yeah, And so even in the article itself, like I was reading and they're like, Oh, well, you know, earlier sexual debuts, basically if you have some sort of sexual experience, Mm -hmm. like, earlier. And I think their range was, like, between, like, under 18, between 12 and 18. It was more related to lifelong, like, cannabis use. Like, had they used cannabis, so there was, Mm -hmm. like, a positive correlation there. Whereas if you sexually debuted later, then it was not linked to as much cannabis use, like, throughout your life. Interesting. But even in their language of, like, their ages of Mm -hmm. sexual debut... What they had was normal, which was 18. Mm-hmm. And then they had, you know, early or like basically they had labeled it as abnormal if it was between the ages of 12 or 18 or if it was, you know, um, I think it was like over like 22 or up to 25. But you're, if you don't have sex when you're 18, you're abnormal if it's earlier or later. Right. So even in how they set up the data, the thing that they mm-hmm. aren't even really analyzing, it already gives you a bias. Right. So yeah.
1: Yeah. That, yeah. That's interesting. I w- was 19 when I had my sexual debut.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so sad people can't see your, uh, your hand gestures.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my sexual debut. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and
1: honestly, I think growing up with an older brother who like ingrained it in my mind to like be good and mm. be self-respectful, which is right. interesting that that's always associated with sex too. Yeah. You know? I just kept waiting and waiting till I don't know, till it felt right, which fair enough. But it would be interesting if we could teach our kids one day that sex isn't this this thing to be afraid of and equally something that's so sacred. Like how mm. can we Play with both, you know?
0: That balance is so hard. It is. Because
1: it is sacred and it's also really fucking fun.
0: Yeah. Right? It's really great. And so often that first experience isn't fun. Yeah. Right? And so as a parent, it's so hard because you're wrought with all of these responsibilities to be like, okay, I'm responsible for your health and safety. And there's so many emotions tied up with it. And that's, I think, a lot of the time why younger people don't talk to their parents about sex, they talk to their peers. Or yeah. if they're lucky, they have, you know, someone who's older, like an aunt or an uncle or a teacher mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. they can talk to about it. Yeah. But trying to find that balance of being like, it's a really important thing, but also yeah. you can have multiple partners throughout your life. You yeah. can explore, you can do whatever. And that's just a wonderful thing. And also yeah. doesn't have to be immensely serious. Like casual sex is fine, yeah. but you also need to know have a lot of self-awareness on what does this mean emotionally? What's the impact physically? What is that impact and what are your expectations? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the hard thing is, is that being attuned with our bodies is so different than what we're told in social media about actually feeling our pleasure. It's not like the messaging isn't around what feels good for you and explore and discuss Mm -hmm. your boundaries Mm -hmm. and it's instead is positioned as sex should be spontaneous and fun you shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to communicate beforehand it should just be like oh I'm both we're both feeling it feeling really hot and so often like you never see any sort of like discussion about barrier (laughs) methods or birth control or anything and it just happens and so I think it can really get lost like that that ingrained thing where like well spontaneity must be a part of sex right And people are like, well, I don't want to talk about it because it'll take away that spontaneity. Yeah. And that is so kind of counterintuitive to actually having a pleasurable experience.
1: Right. Because to feel pleasure, I think you have to feel safe Mm -hmm. in your body. And um, for some people that may come from having a conversation with their partner or for some people it might be like, for me, I know that I get anxious about things in life like Mm -hmm. that's my kind of go to tendency so I really have to do a lot of work around you know doing meditation or having some type of daily practice to like keep coming back to my body like Mm -hmm. keep bringing my head down and just like keep being in my body and I think to access pleasure there has to be that level of safety and trust Mm -hmm. which is super super vulnerable like to trust someone to be seen like that's for a lot of people that's really really scary like myself included and Mm -hmm. I think the more that we can practice these techniques like on our own or with someone that we trust maybe Mm -hmm. like incrementally I think the more we can access that pleasure because I almost think that pleasure is not spoken about in our culture like in a way yes but through very manipulative ways like Mm -hmm. in marketing like, Oh, get this and you'll feel that way or get this and that, but not actual, actual pleasure. Like the opposite of productivity, like the joy of being, the joy of doing these simple things with people, the joy of touching our own bodies. Like why, why don't we, um, access that more, you know? Yeah,
0: definitely. I think that's where I'm kind of thinking like laddering now into talking about like sexual shame. I think that's where a lot of that comes from. And that starts with an awareness and comfortability with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research that has shown that the linkage, especially for people with vulvas and when they start menstruating and Mm -hmm. a lot of like menstrual shame. Mm -hmm. And so if you start feeling shame about that, then it can lead to genital shame. And I mean, that's where a lot of our, so many products that are targeted towards like the female libido and desire about like fixing the vulva of how yeah. do you get better bub flow or how do you yeah. use one of those like yoni eggs to right. create stronger muscles. And it's all about right. pathologizing what's wrong with our bodies and fixing them to feel pleasure mm. instead of just being rooted in that. And that's just kind of those root causes. Like they're laying the groundwork for sexual shame as we get older. Cause if you're yeah. not feeling good about the cycles that you have in your body around menstruation, and then what's the appearance mm-hmm. of your vulva and your experience of it, and then that's gonna—how are you gonna feel empowered in your sexual expression?
1: Yeah, if
0: those things are rooted in shame, and so it's—I think particularly for people with with vulvas, there's so much unlearning that happens. Yeah, which sucks because like that. I think that's so hard to peel back those layers. Mm -hmm. And so it's educating yourself, but actually you need to dig pretty deep and be like, Oh, this, this sense of shame that I'm like, Oh my gosh, like my labia looks so weird. You're like, what, where did that come from? And just like trying to, you have to like repeatedly get rid of that message and like throw it away.
1: Yeah. There's this book I was recently flipping through and it shows a bunch of different photos of different vulvas and it associates each one with an animal. Oh, which is really like kind of confronting because you're like, we are animals, right? Yeah. So, it's kind of bringing this more animalistic feeling towards sex in our own bodies, mm. where each one is so different, and it's it's so funny because each animal, you like read the description, and it's like, just all different characteristics about like who the person is, not just about the vulva, but like okay, this person has like these tendencies. They're very slight, very like delicate, for example, or this person, yada, yada, yada. And I just thought it was interesting because it was kind of abrasive. It was like, oh, whoa, like there's sheep and deer and like whatever, (laughs) like all these different animals. Then you're kind of like, that's really cool because we actually are an animal. And like Mm -hmm. we have this, or at least I've had this idea that I have to be like, perfectly manicured and clean and like mm-hmm. you know uh wearing the perfect underwear and like you know just be yeah. so polished when yeah. really we were these primal animals yeah with like either like a deer or a sheep <laughs> or a this or that and it's like right yeah it's kind of cool to think about it that way
0: yeah well then you uh, sometimes you'll hear people describe the sex that they're having is really like animalistic or primal yeah. or yeah. things like that, because yeah. maybe you're able to tap into mm-hmm. that part of it. And I think that's where a lot of our, it comes back to that mind body split yeah. where it's like, Oh, if we've, I'm using this in quotation marks, like yeah. civilize yeah. our minds. And mm-hmm. then we try and assert control over our bodies. And if our yeah. bodies have like a strange reaction to something, then it's our mind trying to be like, Ooh, that's not normal. Try and suppress. Yeah. Yeah. which is something really nice that if you actually are intimate with someone sometimes, and mm-hmm. like you said, I love that phrase about like being fully seen and mm-hmm. present, like mm-hmm. in your pleasure and really being aware of what's happening between like you and this other person, you and multiple people, whatever yeah. that's on you and yourself, yeah. then maybe you can tap into those more, um, instinctual side of yourself. Yeah. You're not trying to edit it in your brain.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's so important to have self-compassion in the process because Absolutely. sex isn't always going to be mind-blowingly pleasurable. Like it mm. won't be. It I mean, you know,
0: it's I've never met someone who has. That'd be amazing. I'm like, what? Or no, if no. they
1: say that a lot, I kind of question
0: it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I do think it like, absolutely. There's so
1: much pleasure we can tap into, but mm-hmm. I think it, it takes a journey. You yeah. know, we have to go on this journey. And mm-hmm. I also want to say like, it so depends on kind of your upbringing, the way that your body holds onto your belief systems. Because for example, I was doing a breath work workshop and I don't know if you've ever tried breath work, but you essentially, like, get right out of your head and, like, Mm. into your body. and You have these really interesting experiences. And I, like, had this vision of myself, five years old, dancing in a ballet class, Mm. having my teachers say, suck in your belly, suck in your belly, like, belly button to spine, like, like, head up, suck in, suck in. Wow. Yeah. And um, so, for example, that small thing that happened when I was, I don't know, five years old Mm -hmm. in some way that's carried through my adult life because I always feel that I have to look a certain way. And then in sex, I'm constantly focused on how I'm looking that maybe I can't access that pleasure at this moment in my journey. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, different things that happen, um, like different sports you were interested in or different activities you did growing up or your,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: way that sex was talked about in your household or your first experiences, like all of these things are going to impact pleasure because mm-hmm. to access pleasure, you have to feel safe in your body. And yeah. that takes a lot of <laughs> therapy and <laughs> like unwinding yeah. those belief systems. It's, it's deep work. It's not like. We can't expect to have sex and just, like, have these mind-blowing orgasms every single time. Like, it might Mm -hmm. not happen for everyone. Yeah. And I've found, actually, that narrative um, in, you know, different things I've been reading and, like, five ways to have the most epic orgasm or whatever. It's like,
0: (laughs) In all of the Cosmo magazines. yeah. Yeah. It's
1: like, okay, yeah, that's great. But, like, then it's ostracizing the people that maybe can't access that yet. Mm -hmm. You know? And like, that doesn't mean that you're not having good sex. It might just be a different type of intimacy for you.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I feel like we've touched on a lot of things like about Mm. intimacy, getting into our bodies. And I think that comes to like intentionality. Yeah. Right. It's not just if you're cooking a meal or going for a walk in nature, Mm -hmm. it's doing those things, but being really aware that you are doing those things and being present in that moment. Yes. And I think that's where, I think especially now when a lot of us are spending so much more time on screens yeah. that you are, your mind is kind of being pulled in multiple different ways, but then if you can step away from it and like turn off and do something yeah. like, you know, that, that's why I like baking and sourdough bread and all yeah, things like yeah. that have become so big right now. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm doing this like tangible thing. Yes. And I have to, especially with sourdough, because I've been practicing, <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> like
1: have heard. Right?
0: There's yeah. just like, you know, it's like a multi-day process. Yeah, yeah. But being able to commit to something that's like, I'm going to make a loaf of bread that yeah. I will then like eat. Yes. And as I'm eating it, I'm really aware of all of these things that have gone yeah. into doing it itself. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a real shift to the speed to which we're living life right now. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like you need to like do more, read more, do this. Yeah. And I don't know. I think there's a balance between like, I think constantly like educating yourself and learning yeah. more is something that I'm a real advocate for. Like yeah. just really tapping into that curiosity yeah. and learning doesn't necessarily mean picking up a book, but it could <sighs> just be having an experiential yeah. experience where you're out in the world and you're in nature or whichever you're doing and you're actually doing something with your body and you're yeah. learning about yeah. how your body interacts in the world.
1: Totally. And
0: trying to find ways to do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder if we had that same intentionality with like self-pleasure right now, mm-hmm. I think it would be quite yeah, amazing. I
1: think so too. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I think a barrier to self-pleasure is if you're stressed, that's not what you're like, that's not on your mind.
0: Right. Yeah. It's not on your radar. It's
1: not on your radar. Like, you're not thinking about having an orgasm when Mm -hmm. you're super stressed and you're, like, financially burdened and this Mm -hmm. is happening and this is happening. So I think being able to like if there's the option to carve out a little bit more space for yourself and like we were speaking before we were recording I think we're really good now at taking care of ourselves we're not great at loving ourselves Mm. and I think self-pleasure can be an avenue where we can find more of that love for ourselves because we're taking a bit of time out of our day to give our bodies pleasure in Mm -hmm. whatever capacity whether that's an orgasm or not whether that's a I don't know making your sourdough or yeah. whatever that is. But I think it all comes down to kind of like healing mm-hmm. that root too.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And um, and letting, yeah, letting ourselves like explore within that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think if we were able to, yeah, that self-love mm-hmm. was able to replace that shame. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference is if, if you're able to go and root into yourself and your own feelings mm-hmm. and slowly take out your socialization. That's what I say every now and then, you know, when you like say something and you're like, Oh, that's not what I meant. And I I call it like, it's my socialization poking through. Right. And I'm like, Oh, like I can't remember what I said a little while ago. Like I said something like very gendered and that's now that's very rare for me. And I just said it yeah. and my brain was like, Oh, hold on. This isn't a Leah thought. This is, this is my socialization that is like you know, used me as a vessel to spread this message of how to Mm. control us in certain ways. And so I was like, Oh, how do I just, you know, unpack those?
1: Yeah. Right.
0: And I think that's a part of the the journey as well. It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the continuous learning, but it's the unlearning. It's the unpacking where a lot of that growth is going to happen.
1: Yeah, kind of a taking away sometimes rather than an adding on of of information sometimes or of learning like that process of deconditioning is long and like Mm -hmm. can be very painful. And I think that's like the birthplace of kind of where we begin because we don't actually know sometimes what we're here to do in the world when it's been layered and layered and layered of who we think we're supposed to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's perfect. That's a perfect way to end. You're like, (laughs) that's the beginning, right? (laughs) Sexual debut. Right. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to The Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'll be sharing my conversation with Dr. Penny Wilson, and we'll be talking about birth control, barrier methods, and vulvas. If you have a question about birth control and barrier methods, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check me out on Twitter or Instagram and send me a message. Let me know what are the things that you want covered on the show, and I will do my darndest to get them on here. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.